This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The prospect of the Fed hiking interest rates and slower growth out of China has unsettled global markets. We're joined today by Tim O'Neill, Global Head of Goldman Sachs Investment Management Division, to discuss investing in today's climate and how the field could evolve in the future. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jake, for having me. So during this recent period of market volatility, there's been a renewed debate, maybe a debate that never stopped, about the benefits of active versus passive investing. You spoke earlier this year with Bloomberg and called passive investing a potential bubble machine. Talk a little bit about the differences between active and passive investing and how you see these two paths developing in the future. Well, the promise of active investing, Jake, is that they're going to deliver performance uh, net of fees better than the benchmark, whatever the benchmark might be for the U.S., global, or Europe. It's been a difficult seven years for active investors because the markets have risen so consistently and persistently higher. So most active managers have net of fees underperformed at the benchmark. So it led back to this debate about whether or not the fees that you pay for active managers are worth it. And there's been simultaneously a great shift towards passive investing because it's cheap and you would get all of the market returns net of five or 10 basis points. Uh, The problem for passive is that its size at a certain point may be too much for the market to handle. And uh, it's also all on autopilot. So in terms of the size, a market needs both active and passive investing because if everybody's a passive investor, there's no one to buy from. So there's no one, your beta is my alpha and vice versa. So you need a balance in the market. And if passive becomes a certain oversized percentage of the market, the market doesn't function. The other problem with passive, of course, it's all on autopilot. And when you get to periods of misvaluation, over or undervaluation, you need active decision makers because valuation always matters in markets and investing. And it feels like at this point, and particularly at these big turning points, uh, as your preamble stated with, is the Fed going to hike rates or not? Active, intelligent investment decision is probably what's needed and therefore should become a more target-rich environment for active investing. But the debate continues. And so You talk about it being on autopilot. Explain what that means and what the potential consequences of that are. Well, passive investing is designed to map directly to a benchmark. Uh, Let's pick the world's biggest benchmark, which let's say is the S&P 500. And the way the benchmark is designed is that uh, the stocks are ranked high to low according to market capitalization, number of shares times the price. So the world's most uh, valuable stock right now is Apple. And so if you're investing in the weights of Apple over the total weight of all the stocks that you list, whether they're the S&P 500 or the Russell 1000 or the Russell 2000. And that is the market. By definition, a market is what people are paying for things and listed high to low. That may or may not be the best way in which to invest in the market or into stocks. You can weight things in many different ways. You can weight things equally. You can weight things alphabetically. You can weight things according to different parameters. So you can weight according to value measures of price to book, price to cash flow. You can weight them according to quality factors, such as is the company growing? Does it have good management? There are other academically proven factors that you might want to consider other than simply buying stocks ranked high to low according to market capitalization. And so you can design benchmarks in a lot of different ways, but right now, 
it's well settled that a market is stocks weighted according to valuation high to low, market cap benchmarking. So are we stuck with these benchmarks? Are they a necessary evil, or should we be rethinking how we index our investments? Well, you always have to measure things, and so you have to design what the bullseye is before the fact. And right now, the accepted bullseye or benchmark is market capitalization. You can design it slightly differently, so you can design an index that's focused just on value or on growth. You can change the geography of the index, make it global instead of just US. You can change the sizing of it. You can make it mid cap or small cap instead of large cap. But it's necessary to have benchmarks. But there are a lot of different ways in which you can design the benchmark. As I like to say, there are a lot of different paths to heaven. We've used the analogy before is that investing or market design seems a little bit like the history of particle physics. You know, in ancient Greece, they figured out that this was made of something called an atom, but it was 2,000 years later that they figured out that an atom has components of a nucleus and protons and electrons, and particle physics kept going all the way down to the end state. Beta may have the same path. You start out with the atomic structure of market cap beta. Stocks just simply ranked high to low according to that index. But there are other components of the design of the market that produce returns. We're not saying that we're at the end state yet, but it's a passage that I think, a journey that I think people should go on. So automated asset managers, bots or all kinds of colorful phrases, you know, have come up in recent years. How does that fit within this debate between active and passive investing? Well, that's a means of delivery. It's not the end in itself. The world's moving in every sphere from analog to digital and investing is one of the participants in that transition. There has to be more efficient ways in which to deliver investment information, which is the real part of the story here, as to whether that's the exclusive way in which investment decision-making is made. I think the jury's still out on that. I've always thought that investing is very akin to medical care. Some people may get advice by looking at the internet, but we still think that they need to talk to a doctor. And I think for financial advice, I think it would be imprudent probably just to consult a robo-advisor or a machine and you actually talk to someone. And in both instances, you actually need someone to advise you and get you to do something that's appropriate either for your health or your portfolio. So you're not worried that some bots will uh, take away active investing over time? I don't think so. So on the technology side, there's a lot of potential to reshape the relationship between advisor, advisee, but there's also been some coverage about how technology could revolutionize the back end of the investment management process. Some talk about blockchain technology and its potential application for banks. What's your perspective coming at it from the asset managing side of Goldman, not the trading arm? Well, I think, Jake, you always have to understand what your business model is and how technology aids and abets your business model. I think in the case of investing, the business model hasn't changed since 1792 under the buttonwood tree. So what you do in investing, you decide to buy or sell something, so somebody has to execute and match that order. Then the order has to be cleared, meaning you have to match the buyer and seller, have all the terms specified. Then it has to be settled, so the dollars have to move against the certificate. And then it has to be held or custodied somewhere. So that's the business model that we're in. You know, you have to make that decision and then execute it, clear, settle, and custody it. It's been, until the last 20 years, an entirely analog process. And now, as we talked about earlier, technology is automating these processes. Now, the first point is that we understand with technology, what it does is it makes things go faster. So it reduces latency. It speeds things up. 
the most prominent aspect of the application of technology to that processing is on the execution end. So the tip of the spear is when you match the buy against the sell and order execution, and high frequency trading technology has reduced that to milliseconds. And that's that, where the bulk of the investment has been, on the front end of the trade. Yes, yes. And so after the order is matched in that millisecond, you still have to clear it, you still have to settle it, and then you have to custody it. Now, right now, in the U.S. securities market, that takes three business days to do all that. It doesn't so happen milliseconds in the, on the front end, three business days on the back end. Yes. So the real benefit of technology going forward is to shorten that, automate that, make that less latent, so move that from three to two to one to actually happen simultaneously because every aspect of the trade is dematerialized. You don't get the stock certificate anymore with the mermaids and the railroad cars on it. Cash you don't feel anymore. So everything is just data in a process that's been digitized so that technology will make that happen faster. Now you mentioned blockchain. Blockchain is really just another form of clearing, settling, and custody. The attraction of blockchain is, that, first of all, it's decentralized. So it's a process that happens away from banks, away from regulators, and it has the independence of miners processing and verifying the system, the chain of custody on each transaction. But the basic concept is just technology making the clearing, settling, and custodial function happen at the speed of light. Whether that happens under a regulatory umbrella, inside banks, outside banks, it's a little bit of a red herring towards the fundamental issue is it's really unreasonable that it takes three days to settle a stock trade. Yeah, especially in an era when you can execute the trade so quickly. Yep, you should be able to do it with an app on your smartphone. So. Big data has been a big focus of the industry recently, um, and our firm has invested in some big data companies. How do you reconcile the potential benefits of big data, particularly when it comes to making investments, with the new kind of risks it introduces to your business? Well, big data to me also represents the possibility of sensory overload. So no doubt technology is collecting more information, making it available to you, dumping it in a big pile in front of you each morning. And the question is how you process it and separate the noise from the signal. Because signals are quite rare in terms of being able to actually understand and predict the future. Because big data is, in this context, I'm using it not in terms of processing something that's already happened, but using big data as an inferential device, predicting the future. So trying to see from this information how stocks or bonds or markets are going to move. That's generally the seduction of big data right now for the marketplace. And what you need to understand is markets like nature don't give up their secrets very easily, that it takes a long time to prove causality. You get confounded by a lot of correlation variables, but to find true causality, if A happens, then for sure B will happen, that is rare in nature and in markets. And so big data holds out that promise of finding that predictive signal, but it's very rare. Tim, let's shift gears and talk about a new development, a reasonably new development in the investment management division, the business you run. We spoke earlier this year with Hugh Lawson, the new head of environmental, social, and governance investing in IMD, about investors' growing interest in that type of investment management decision-making. What kind of an impact do you think ESG investing will have on your business, and why are clients clamoring for it now? I think, Jake, ESG investing is a very important moment right now in finance for two reasons. One is that there's tremendous and appropriate interest from clients in 
directing their investing that way. So where you can combine social good with monetary values, very important. The second aspect of it though, is what was implicit in your question, which is that it may very well be that using ESG as a factor is as important in constructing a portfolio as using valuation. So price to book and price to cash flow or growth or size or style. And it may reveal that if a corporation is governed according to those principles, it's going to be a good investment as well. And that's the real promise of ESG, that it may be the most dominant factor in constructing a portfolio away from market capitalization, away from geography, away from size. ESG may drive everything in terms of causation. So your team is now looking at those factors, helping institutional asset managers figure out just those kinds of issues now? Yeah, it starts, Jake, first and foremost, as a filter. So a client wants a portfolio designed a certain way, and we're able to quantitatively triage portfolio of stocks to focus on an ESG criteria. So alternative investments, another area of focus uh, within IMD. For those who aren't as familiar with this term, the class of assets include everything from real estate to commodities to private equity. In the past, these products were typically available just to sophisticated investors or institutions, a limited audience, but they're increasingly becoming retail. What's the significance of that development? Is that a good thing for individuals to have access to these kinds of funds? Very good question, Jake, and I think it's an example of a couple of things. One is that in this business, we use labels as a substitute for analysis, and sometimes it's better to just explain things rather than use a label, and this is a good example of that. So if you want to invest in something, in terms of how you do it, there's really basically three ways. You can open up a separate account, and you can direct that separate account yourself, just an account at a brokerage. You can secondly invest in a mutual fund, so that's a commingled vehicle of yours and other people's money, where there's no limit on the amount of money you can put in, either as a minimum or a maximum, and there's daily liquidity. Then there's this third category, which occupies the label alternatives, and is hedge funds and private equity funds. But really what it is, is these are commingled vehicles, so you're not the only investor in it, but has, as you pointed out, limited access, so you have to have a certain profile as an investor, and also limited liquidity, so your money's locked up for three months or 10 years, whatever it is. So the transition of that vehicle, if you will, from alternatives to liquid alternatives is quite simply reducing those two restrictions. So now in terms of who can invest in an alternative, it's now down to the same minimums as it is for a mutual fund. And it doesn't have the illiquidity feature anymore. It'll have the daily liquidity, the daily NAV that a mutual fund has. And as you pointed out, that vehicle, you can pour into it almost any asset class that you find in either separate accounts or mutual funds. So it can be stocks, bonds, real estate, it can be domestic, it can be international. And so this is really, again, not an end in itself. It's another example of a means to that end of achieving higher returns. So one of the arguments those managers made in the past was that they were able to focus a little bit on the longer term, a little bit less away from quarterly earnings because they didn't have these demands of daily liquidity and people wanting to redeem. They didn't have the threat of a run to make them too conservative sometimes. How will the move into more liquid vehicles change the way they offer products to investors? Again, a very good point because the investment style of the manager is really a function of how the vehicle itself is designed. 
So if you're an investment manager of a fund where your investors can't call for redemption for 10 years, you're going to have a different investment portfolio than managing a fund where your investors, all of them, can call for their money back tomorrow. So the portfolios will be structured differently than illiquid, if you will, classic alternatives. And they may be closer to the strategies as reflected in mutual funds where you carry a higher percentage, less leverage, because you can leverage these vehicles up. So yes, the structure will impact the design of the portfolio. Stepping back a little bit, pensions still provide long-term financial stability for millions of people around the world, probably billions. As the population ages, how is that landscape around pensions shifting? And what are the challenges that pension funds are facing in this very low-yield environment? Well, the pension funds are in a low-yield interest rate environment on both sides of the equation. So their liabilities increase when you discount at lower and lower interest rates. And then, of course, the same lower interest rates produce no yield on the asset side. It's like the story I tell of the problem of zero is that the history of the Arabic numeral system was that for the first 400 years of the number system, zero wasn't in it because it was a mystical number. It was zero. It was void. It meant nothing. Then they put zero in it, and all of a sudden you could go negative. And you see some of the issues right now in the capital markets because interest rates are not zero, or at least they were zero and negative in Germany, to pick one instance. But it's destabilizing the system, and particularly involving pension funds. Because if you think about a pension fund, the value of its assets have gone down and the value of its liabilities have gone up because of zero or low interest rates. And so the best thing that can happen to pension funds is a rising interest rate environment because it'll make income go up and therefore the discounted present value of the liabilities will also shrink and life will be more normal. The other thing that's happening in the pension fund area now is that more and more the technology, the investment technology, is marrying the investment opportunity on the asset side with the cash flows actuarially on the pension side because you have a lot of people with different life expectancy, different income needs, different benefit payments that need to be assembled in a certain way against an investment portfolio. And the two of those, I think, need to be synchronized more. We now have the technology to do that better. Thinking to the future as more and more millennials come into the workforce and, and even people older than millennials, we're moving away from that system, particularly in the United States, more to a defined contribution scheme. How's that going to change the nature of your business where fewer and fewer pension assets to invest, more and more individuals investing? Well, this is definitely a generational issue. So the baby boom generation, my generation, was the first to experience moving from defined benefit where you didn't have to worry about your retirement and the company that you work for would provide it for you until you died to the 401k regime where you're responsible for your own savings for retirement. This is a very important issue because managing your own personal wealth is a very difficult issue. And as we talked about earlier about robo-advisors, technology isn't the answer there. You still need to have informed guidance as about how you're supposed to assemble a portfolio for retirement. It is the biggest pool of savings now in America in particular. It's much larger than the pool of money in dedicated defined benefit pension plans. How that pool of money is advised, how it is structured, the menu that's are offered inside the plans, very important policy decisions as much as investment decisions because a lot of this is governed by what Washington, D.C. decides to do in a number of different ways. And it's most important for the millennials because they're the generation that's going to, from T0, going to have to deal with saving for retirement. 
yeah, no possibility of a defined benefit plan. Are people prepared for that? I mean, we've talked a lot post-financial crisis about financial literacy, financial education, but these are difficult decisions to make, and the data shows that a lot of millennials are actually fairly conservative in the way they're investing. Yes. I think the best thing to learn about investing from the earliest possible age is discipline, that you have to have a plan and you have to stick with it. So you have to save and you have to have an investment plan that you continually underwrite or re-examine, if you will, after a period of time, and you stick with it. That's why I use the word discipline, because that choice between consuming a dollar and saving a dollar always been a very difficult one, whether you're a baby boom generation or you're a millennial. And the discipline of savings and then a discipline around investing those savings is the same for a millennial as it has been for any other generation. Tim, if Benjamin Graham were alive today, what would he think about the investing landscape we see today? Well, Ben Graham would still have uh, the same philosophy that he's always had, which is that uh, the valuation is the first tenet of investing. And certainly his most famous pupil, Warren Buffett, would say the same thing. The thing is different in 2015 versus right after 1929, when Ben Graham was most active in investing, is that there's many more things to do. There's many more markets to invest in, more asset classes, more instruments to deploy. And so this is where the word that I used before, discipline, is so important. And that's what Graham preached and what Warren Buffett will preach, is that you have to define your zone of competence and stick with it. So you may be knowledgeable about technology, you may be knowledgeable about industrials, you may be knowledgeable about finance. But it's rare that anyone is a renaissance person these days where you can actually absorb all the information that comes running to you. You have to pick an opportunity, have a frame, and then stick with it. There's a tendency when we talk about the future of anything, the future of investing, the future of cars, the future of whatever it is, we talk about what will look different. And we've talked about a lot of things that are driving change today, technology, demographics, new asset classes. But when you step back and think about what will look very similar or what will look the same 10, 15 years from now in this space, in the investing space, what do you think is most likely to look very similar in the future? I think almost all the issues that we talked about will still be resonant in the marketplace of investing, uh, Jake. I think that the active versus passive debate will still be there. The use of technology will still be there. Big data will be even bigger. All of those cascade into the one thing I keep mentioning, which is what will be the same is you need more discipline because there's going to be more information, more opportunities. And so that's the one thing I, I always preach about investing is that it's not how smart you are necessarily, but how focused and disciplined you are about applying a particular point of view about the opportunity set. Tim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you'll join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on September 15th, 2015. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, 
including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.